not here last week and would like to be on the email list to know what we're going to be studying next week, uh, I'll send you a reminder. But if you were not here again, be sure to sign up. Anybody else? All right, uh, <clears throat> prison letters, as we intimated last week, uh, we're looking at these. Remember that they're personal letters. You're looking over the shoulder, if you will, of people who got, who got this letter. And uh, uh, so often, I guess, growing up, you know, you were looking for proof text to justify any and everything that you did religiously or find the exact commands of Jesus. And so you look at a verse... And, and forget about the context of what it was that generated the letter in the first place, who it was addressed to, and why. So just remember that as we look at these letters today. We start Philippians. And if I can remember which button to push. Jerusalem way over here. You've got Turkey. Modern day Turkey would be here. Greece. Philippi is way up here. So as we think about that in a minute. Uh, Philippi is first mentioned in Acts chapter 16. If you remember, this would be those who count them, Paul's second missionary journey. Um, if you think about where it is, it's located on the Via Ignatia. I know about vias. If you go over to see the street signs, the street or highway, and it connected all the way over here. What's this place right here in modern day? Istanbul. Istanbul. Istanbul, old Constantinople or Istanbul. And what's that tiny little state? Bosphorus state. Where you got Asia and Europe come together uh, almost. It's a little and what what do you remember, George, about this whole bay here? Anything sick out? Sally and I cruise the the area from uh, where do we start? Uh, Venice to Istanbul. We went through this area at night and got in here early in the morning. That bay is almost, solid. you could almost walk from ship to ship. It's just full, very busy, busy area, this whole area. And particularly in Paul's time, would have been dependent on this landmass to get across here on this highway. Connecting on over to the east coast of Greece, hence they could jump off to Rome. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. <coughs> Roman colonies typically settled by former soldiers, retired soldiers, as a kind of reward. They'd get land, they'd get some freedom, they'd get the freedoms as though they lived in Rome, uh, some uh, break some taxes. You know, even then they were moving for tax breaks. Why do you think I'm in Tennessee? No income tax, right? Uh, oh, no, no, seven grandchildren. Okay, okay so. Uh, Paul and his band of married men, and perhaps some leave here, go through Antioch by land, and they get to Derby and Lystra, Acts 16 says, where they mention a young man named Timothy. Timothy becomes part of uh, Paul's band. What's unique about Timothy? May I remember? Raised by women. Well, and his mixed mixed race. His father is a Greek. His mother's a Jew. He's obviously been married. I mean, not married. Raised as a Jew, perhaps, because it says he's a, a disciple. And so he probably, or apparently, impresses Paul 
Paul wants him to become part of the missionary team. And it says out of deference, or at least as a courtesy to the Jewish followers, he has him circumcised in order to continue on the journey. Interesting, in Acts chapter 16, it talks about that Paul uh, couldn't go down into Asia because of what? Why couldn't he go into Asia? Holy Spirit said don't. Then it says they traveled up here into Mysia and they wanted to go into Bithynia, but what? Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let him go. Now, I, I wonder, Josh, in any of your studies, have you, have you get the difference between the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go to Asia and the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let him go into Bithynia? I couldn't find anything in the books I read this week that gave me a hint of what that might mean, what difference would it make. But apparently... You just don't want to say the same thing the same way twice. Okay, so there you go. All right, so there are three principal events while he's in, uh, uh, in Acts chapter 16. You have Lydia, Lydia, a woman who's leading a group of women out on the riverbank in prayer, and Paul encounters her. Uh, she is what? Who is Lydia? Sorry? A businesswoman. Now, again, solar purple from Thyatira or Lambda Purple. Uh, but interestingly, now, you have glimpses of women throughout the Bible who don't fit the norm. In that time, generally, women were what? They were home, minding the kids, taking care of the household. But in the case of Israel, who was a judge? Deborah. Uh, but here you have Lydia, who's playing a prominent role. She listens to Paul, listens to his words of, of the gospel. Uh, responds, or she and her whole household are baptized, and she does what? She invites them. Now again, why would a woman invite a group of men to stay in her home? Does she have a husband? We don't know. Some speculate she might have been an older widow, but it could have been scandalous in her time for if it was a younger woman to invite men to come stay at her home. So. There had to be something going on there that we don't know all the details. But clearly she was a, a woman of influence and Paul encounters her and she becomes a, a pillar in that church. She's called a God-fearer, uh, probably a Gentile, who had come to understand something about the Jewish faith in Jehovah. A second uh, major person you encounter in 16 is the slave girl who's a fortune teller. Her owners use her to generate income. And she follows them around, says these people are representatives of God, and hollers, follows them around for a week or so. And finally, Paul is exasperated, and he does what? Cast out the spirit, the spirit of fortune telling. And so the natural reaction, I guess, when, when owners of the girl realize their source of income is gone, they bring Paul and, and the followers in front of the magistrates and accuse them of inciting customs not legal under Roman rule. They're thrown into Jesus, uh, thrown in, they're beaten and then thrown into jail. And hence, the third major person encountered in Acts 16 is the Philippian jailer. What happens at midnight? 
earthquake, cells open, the jailer fearing the worst that everybody's escaped and thus he's condemned to die. He's ready to take a sword to himself. Paul says, don't harm yourself. I'm still here you know, all along with all the prisoners. The jailer is obviously affected. Brings, uh, brings them out. Learns the gospel. He and his house are baptized. And he attends their wounds. The next day they're released. So, when Paul leaves, uh, in Acts 16, he leaves here and goes up to here in order to go to Philippi. What, what leads him to Philippi in the first place? We have heard the Macedonian call two days in the life. Send the light. Verse 2, is it verse 2, 3 of the old gospel song, Send the Light? Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let him go here. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go here. He's up here in Troas and he sees a vision of a man over in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Wendell, have you ever had a vision of a man? I don't get vision. You don't get vision. Okay. All right. So Philippi, probably 800 miles to Rome, 600 miles back to Jerusalem, city of about 10,000, strategically located visitors coming through there on the Ignatia Road. Um, was named after Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. And let's see, that's about, takes care of that. Okay. Let's go. The apostle and his friends, somebody, people call it. This is a letter of joy, of friendship, of thanks. It's not a let's beat up the Christians book. It's, not a, it's an encouragement letter. Joy will be one of the prevailing words. And as I mentioned to you last week, we'll look at a word that I think is equally important as well. I'm going to read from the new... new Living Translation. Chapter 1. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 11. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, uh, we Americans go to great extent to prove that we're not slaves to anything, right? We have our freedoms, we have our individual freedoms. Paul lays it on the line. He's no longer free. He's a slave to Christ. He's given his life to that service. Notice this verse. It is written to all of God's people in Philippi who believe in Christ Jesus and to the elders and deacons. Now, Randall, why do you think he had to specifically say it to the elders and deacons? Are, are we not part of the believers? But they think they know everything. Okay, so <laughs> you, you might say, he's saying, and remember, elders and deacons, it's to you too. I don't know what he had in his mind, but that, that struck me the same way. And may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So kind of a standard greeting. But then here comes the thanks. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. I always pray for you. I make my request with a warm, with a heart full of joy because... You have been my partners in spreading the good news. Now let's stop right there. Okay, uh, Barry Dean, you're a CPA, you're a partner. 
in a law, in a, not a law firm, but an accounting firm. Aren't you glad you're not a partner in law? <laughs> I mean, you know, you're a partner in a CPA. What does being a partner in a CPA firm really mean? Well, Besides, you get all the complaint calls. Uh, a lot of shared uh, shared goals, shared responsibilities. Right. Yeah, under partnership law, in most states, unless it specifically says to the contrary. What's generally true about a partnership? You bind each other equally. You're all liable for the actions of every partner. That's kind of scary. It's so scary that maybe 20 years ago, most states began to enact called limited partnership laws. So you see the letters LLP after a lot of partnership names now. Limited liability partnership. What are some of the other things about a partnership? You have a fiduciary duty to each other. Absolutely. Fiduciary, that's a big word, meaning what? You need to care for, you're responsible for, you, you are involved in the, okay. <coughs> Partners, unless, again, unless specified otherwise, are pretty equal, aren't they? Now, in our, in the firm I was in, we were a partner, but then there were partners. <laughs> and you knew who, because your capital account and your voting power was proportional to how much capital you had in the firm, how much investment you put in it. And your investment was limited to one half of your most recent year's income. Therefore, who had the most capital? Those who made the most money. And so the power earning partners, and you generally knew who they were, uh, being the chairman usually was the highest, but uh, uh, you had different voting strengths. So when Paul says, you're my partners, Paul clearly was an apostle. He had powers, he had abilities. He was going from place to place. So this was a very generous description of their participation. Now what exactly had they done to rank as partners? What had they done to help Paul? They shared the ministry. They shared, but how did they share it? In? Think about Lydia. What did she do? She took them to her house. What did the Philippian jailer do? He took them and bound up their wounds. What have they done now that he's in prison? be it in Rome or Caesarea or Ephesus or wherever the scholars tell us he was in Rome, uh, wherever he was in jail, but what had they done to help Paul? They had sent him some money. They had sent Epaphroditus to help him. And so, again, even in business where partners make different contributions in a firm, they may make different amounts of money because of those efforts. They're still partners. They're viewed as contributing to the well-being of the firm. And here, Paul is being very gracious as he tells them, you know, you have, uh, uh, because of your partnership, here's what I'm doing. I'm praying for you. I'm giving thanks for you. I make my wishes for you known every time I pray. They are in the gospel and grace business. We, we learned uh, down in verse 7. Uh, they are separated by distance on a different continent, but they are sharers. 
in the gospel. He said, of this I am convinced the one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. And one, I guess, uh, one or two other thoughts before I give it to Josh. It is right for me to think this way about you because I know you have me in your hearts. I am here in prison working to defend and bolster the gospel. Now, in reading about his imprisonment, it appears that he was under house arrest. He was not in a dungeon somewhere. He was confined. You know how uh, in today's situation, sometimes people are confined to their home, they have little anklets around electronic location devices, so if they leave, the alarm goes off and they're put back. In this case, he was probably chained, maybe, uh, but he had a household, but people think he was responsible for his own food, he had to have money to live, but he was free to entertain visitors, people came and went, he could therefore share the gospel, he, said, he, talk, he talks about uh, defending the gospel and confirming the gospel uh, through his efforts, and in all of that, they're his partners. And then lastly, in verses 9 through 11, is a little prayer, not a little prayer. Notice, he says, I'm praying that, in, that you will grow in knowledge and in all astute wisdom. This business of being a Christian is not just uh, grasping the grace of God, being thankful for that, and sitting back waiting for the day of Jesus to come back. It is something more than that. He says, we want you to be able to tell the difference between good and evil. That gets more, more difficult in this day in which we live, isn't it? What is the difference in good? Do we even call things evil anymore? Be sincere and faultless, filled to overflowing with the, the fruit of right living. And that's, you could have, how many sermons have you heard on, uh, for instance, second, you can have a whole series, sermon series on adding the graces and gifts as a Christian. And I think as you look at adding your knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, God, in different stages of your life, I'm sitting here at age 70, how old is it? 74, almost. Not quite 74. How, how do you renew yourself and ask yourself, at this stage of life, how am I in kindness and, and love and perseverance and all this stuff? I think you, you go through periods of renewal and self-reflection on these things. As, as somebody becomes a Christian, if, again, if we're not looking at growing out of our thankfulness, out of our, not out of an obligation, but out of a sheer thankfulness to Jesus and God for what he's done for us, then I think that's too bad. Josh? You know how to turn this I'm a natural glow. I don't need the <laughs> All right. It's interesting to consider that Paul has been given this ministry um, from Jesus to spread the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, and he so often finds himself in prison. And yet he doesn't see his being in prison as somehow uh, limiting his calling. In fact, as you kind of read through, you discover that, that Paul seems to see something about being in prison as one way of um, completing his calling, as though taking on and embodying the suffering of Christ uh, is itself a way to advance and progress the gospel. And so 
Uh, one, of the, one of the words that shows up through here, uh, as Hilton mentioned, we get language of partnership and joy, but we also get language about thinking and considering. And so some of what Paul is doing uh, in Philippians is helping us to see things um, more uh, as Christ might see them, uh, to adopt a new perspective. Am I still glowing? I have this light shining right on me. Um, all right, if it's, if it's not awkward or distracting to you all, I'll be okay with it. Uh, so our strategy uh, as we go through this is uh, one person's going to introduce half. Next person's going to get up and say, here's a few things that I might add to that. Uh, that way we can supplement uh, each other. Hilton said a lot of things that I overlooked, so it was really helpful to get especially some of that background stuff on what was going on in Philippi. If you came to my Romans class, you will know that I really like to hone in on the first couple verses of every letter that Paul writes. Uh, I think those first couple verses um, capture so much of the, the, the framework that, make, that, that Paul operates from within. This is how Paul makes sense of the world, and he has this kind of framework. So like in verse 1 and 2, when we get Paul saying he's a servant of Christ, uh, Christ is this long-awaited restoring king. Paul is already saying in his opening letter here um, that, that things are changed when he uses the word Christ. In fact, in Philippians, he uses the word Christ 61 times. Christ is not simply a title or a last name. Uh, to declare Jesus is Christ is to declare that something has changed in the world. And so Paul is going to... Um, call the Philippians to live in light of that changed world uh, through what Christ has done. We also get language in there about grace. Uh, grace, uh, typically in the opening of letters, you get the word greetings, karain. Paul uses grace, charis, uh, because part of Jesus being Christ and changing the world is intimately tied to his embodiment of grace. How does he overcome? How does he conquer? He does it through sacrificial love. What is Paul going to call the Philippians to as they embody Christ? How do they advance the gospel? Through that same kind of sacrificial love, through service and humility. He calls God Father uh, as a reminder that this is a good and loving God. Uh, and he uses language about the gospel. When we hear gospel, don't just think uh, how I go to heaven when I die, how I get saved. If you're in Romans, we, we're, we're learning that gospel is a proclamation that God reigns, and that he has won a victory. And this victory is over sin and death. So Paul is going to see the world the way he does from prison, and he's going to call people to embody Christ because he believes that God is reigning in new and powerful ways through what Christ has done. Because he is convinced that God has won a victory over sin and death through the cross. And because of this, he can say, he can use language like joy in the midst of prison. He can call people to something like partnership in sufferings, which sounds like pure foolishness and stupidity. Partner with sufferings? No, thank you. But for Paul, if suffering broke the power of sin and death, then maybe there's some wisdom uh, in following this and living out the good news. As Hilton picked up on this language, he began a good work and we're waiting till the day of Christ. We realize we're living in an in-between time. Something has already started. He began a good work. But it's not yet finished. We're waiting to the day of Christ. Christians live in limbo. We live in this limbo as we know that a victory has been won, but we don't feel the full results of that victory yet. And so uh, this language of advance and progress shows up throughout. And then the last little piece uh, that I might um, 
that, that stood out to me in verses 1 through 11, uh, Hilton picked up on there at the very end about our need to grow in knowledge and wisdom. And the angle that I want to make sure you see in verse 9 is that he wants their love to abound in knowledge and wisdom. Love is not simply a feeling, uh, but for us to love well, we've got to know how to think well. So there's a lot of well-intentioned uh, good feelings that don't produce as much good as they could because some of those well-intentioned good feelings uh, are not uh, informed by knowledge, and moral insight, and wisdom. We've got to uh, stop thinking in terms of head versus heart and see that head and heart go together. Some congregations, they might emphasize this, and then so the pendulum swings. No, it's all about how you feel or your heart. Uh, it's, it's both. Okay, now let's jump into uh, 12, and we'll see if we can get all the way through uh, the chapter. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So here he is, in chains, somehow this is advancing the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, the Praetorian Guard, think of this as like a combination, as one author says, of the Navy SEALs and Secret Service. This is some elite um, people here. And to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. I am in chains for the conquering king. So, 2,000 years later as Christians, this doesn't sound weird. Think first century. Think 20 years after Jesus has been nailed to a cross and seemingly been defeated and overpowered by Rome. Paul is calling the one who was crucified, who was, um, uh, who was killed in the, the form that you kill a slave. How do you, what do you do to punish a slave? Or, or um, Cicero calls crucifixion the punishment of slaves. This is the death of a slave. Paul is saying this is the death of the Christ. And if it's true that he is the Christ, then it makes sense that Paul might say, I am in the chains of Christ. And it's advancing even, to some degree, among the emperor's elite troops. Of all people, who should reject a conquered Messiah? And yet something about the reality and power of the gospel can even break through people whose framework is so different. Where is power? Where is conquering? Well, for these elite troops, you would think it would be through violence or force or coercion. Paul is saying, oh, there's already some advancement being made in chains. In my chains. Paul sees no, no um, separation, no problem with um, simultaneous presence of, of suffering and struggle and the advance of the gospel. So if we keep, uh, keep moving here, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard, or jump to verse 14, and because of my chains, not in spite, because... Important uh, little connector there. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. They have reason to be afraid. They should have some fear. Uh, not only is Paul in prison, not only was Jesus uh, crucified, but in, in their society there are social ramifications to being a Christian. To, to operate in the business world in Philippi, you would want to be part of the trade guilds, and to be a part of the trade guilds, you often had to be willing to make sacrifices to the proper gods. To refuse to make sacrifices to the gods is to set you on the outside of the trade guilds, which is going to have some serious economic implications. There is obviously physical implications. 
political and religious implications. And yet, Paul says, despite this, despite the struggle that this might arise, despite what it might mean to be faithful, they are boldly, they are boldly sharing something that sounds like foolishness to the world. It is simple foolishness to proclaim a crucified Christ. In, in a colony, remember what Hilton said, where uh, you have this uh, Roman veterans uh, kind of uh, as a core piece of this. Can you imagine a more patriotic place? And one who is crucified by Rome is claimed to be uh, the source of truth and victory. You might think about what this means. How can we intimidate this? How can we in- imitate this? How do we take seriously um, Paul's vision? How might we speak or embody the gospel boldly and wisely? Not as we, I think, often see improperly model. We sometimes see what appears to be boldness. Uh, sometimes people who are overly loud and obnoxious uh, trying to make claims about Christ. But Paul, um, Paul matches boldness with humility. Uh, speaking courageously with servanthood. Uh, so he is bringing these two things together, and I think in a, in a model that we could, um, we could learn from. Uh, 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Um, we're not strangers to people using religion or using Christianity. Uh, in improper ways for uh, selfish means. Uh, Interestingly, though, Paul can say something like, verse 18, what's it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Uh, We're going to be picking up on Paul's singular devotion, if you haven't already seen this already. For Paul, however they might be causing him anguish, and it's not clear how their preaching Christ might cause him anguish, uh, maybe, uh, as Hilton was, uh, was referring to, uh, if people, if Paul's relying on monetary support, if they are preaching in such a way that that is putting Paul down, it could be taking away his support while he's in prison, causing greater suffering. It's not entirely clear. Uh, but for Paul, what ultimately matters is Christ. As we're about to read, for me to live is Christ. And there's, there's almost no more powerful kind of Christian witness uh, than those few words which we're about to turn to. Um, verse 19, well, in case you're wondering, does it really not matter about motives? Of course it matters. Uh, we know that from, we'll see later that Paul talks about sincerity. We know that from Jesus' teaching, uh, motives matter, sincerity matters. But for Paul, what he's saying is, ultimately, what matters is Christ. All right, 19. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Uh, The language here of being ashamed is not about embarrassment. Paul's not worried that he's going to be embarrassed. Um... But it seems like it's picking up more on this language of he doesn't want to bring shame on the gospel. Uh, And especially as he spells this out, whether it's in his life or death, that he's going to go on speaking boldly. It's almost that he's saying, I don't want to be um, one who 
in the potential torture and death that's coming up who recants, who fails to speak boldly on behalf of Christ. He's not so much worried about being embarrassed. He already knows he's preaching something that's foolishness to the world. He's not worried about his own ego. What he's worried about is whether he will be faithful to Christ even in the midst of suffering. That's his concern, to live as Christ. This is what he's going to say later. Our boast is in Christ. For Paul, it's Christ, Christ, Christ. That's why he says it 61 times in the letter. As I read this this week, it was so um, both inspiring and convicting. I, I thought, this, this is what Christian life is supposed to be about. And I was reading this as I was thinking about other things and realizing, man, some of the stuff that is really consuming me right now, if I were to have the to live as Christ perspective, I would see it for the kind of pettiness that it is. I w- it would put it in its proper perspective. And, and I think Hilton's right. This is not meant to be a kind of guilt trip thing because Paul does recognize that we are works in progress. There is advance happening. But we need to be those who are on this progress. And what progress looks like, ultimately for Paul, is progress in embodying Christ. Progress in living as Christ. Um, All right. Josh, yes. in, in Rome, in all the all the all their provinces, what has Paul done that uh, not entirely clear. Perhaps he's disturbing the peace. Uh, perhaps he's failing to honor Caesar uh, appropriately. Perhaps it's failure to worship the gods. He doesn't tell us uh, exactly what it is. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I don't know exactly what. Sometimes we wish he would give us a little bit more more details. Um, yeah. I just don't know, ultimately. Sometimes if you, if you cause enough trouble, then sometimes it's just easier to get rid of. I mean, and it, and it could, it, it, it's not necessarily a legal framework thing as it is. If somebody would just take a hammer to this guy's head, we would be solved all these problems. <laughs> yeah, justice doesn't always work as it's supposed to. I mean, you get Stephen who's stoned back in Jerusalem. Uh, so there's, there's a sense of that. I mean, Nero, I think it was Nero, burns Christians kind of on a whim, you know. But he's a Roman citizen. Paul is, yes. Yeah, that's what yeah so how can you kill a Roman citizen, yeah. But he was in Philippi and arrested by taking the spirit out of the girl. He did not invoke his own citizenship. And I thought that was pretty interesting when you read that Philippians with that in mind, that he did not keep himself out of uh, he's not selfish in that Roman citizenship. Although he did say, he said, I'm not leaving jail. I'm a Roman citizen. Make him come down here and apologize. <laughs> so, I mean, he did at least a little bit of that. Yeah, he doesn't, there's not like a one-size-fits-all approach to how Paul deals with situations. I, I don't know if there's discernment in there or what's going on, but the way Paul handles this situation here is not always how he handles it over here. But... Um, there might be a better answer to, to what's going on. I just, I don't know it. Maybe a little bit like Al Capone or OJ. You know, you're gonna, if you want to get somebody, if you can't get them for what they did, you get them You can for something else, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, perhaps so. Always get them for income tax, buddy. All right, let me pick up the pace here and uh, give Hilton uh, the last word here in about six or seven minutes. Um, so, uh, verse 21 to, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
he explains what it means for him to live as Christ uh, in the next verse. Uh, life in the flesh or life in the body doing fruitful labor. For Paul, what's life look like in the flesh? Life looks like seeking to embody Christ, doing the work of Christ. And as he expands even more in verse 25, that fruitful labor, look, fruitful labor looks like uh, helping people in the progress and joy of the faith. You're always progressing the gospel. You're always seeking to embody Christ. This is what life's about. But for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Why would to die be gain for Paul? Well, in verse 23, we see that to die for Paul uh, seems to be almost synonymous as to be with Christ, which he thinks is better. We'll read verse 23. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. This is one of those verses where I thought, man, his... his heart for Christ, his longing for Christ is so intense uh, that death, death sounds like a good thing. I mean, he's not seeking death, um, as we're going to see. He's going to seek to be Christ wherever he might find himself. But death isn't this scary thing. Death is closer uh, intimacy with Christ. I can't even, I mean, I'm so far from that, so far from that perspective. Um, that, uh, yeah, it's, it is just a shocking kind of thing for Paul to say here. And it gives me a, um, a model uh, for my own need to advance and my love and devotion to Christ. Uh, how it is that dying is being with Christ is not spelled out well in Scripture. Um, there's kind of this intermediate state between death and resurrection. The ultimate goal is the resurrection of our bodies. Think of Christ's resurrected body. So in this in-between time when we die now, uh, what does it mean to be with Christ when we don't have bodies? Um, the Jewish and Christian view is primarily that we are whole when we are body and spirit together. But somehow in this intermediate time, there is a, a withness, uh, being a with Christ. Um, Paul refers to it elsewhere as sleep. Um, so, I don't want to spend too much time, maybe any time this morning, uh, speculating too much on what that is, other than um, the end goal or the end of the story is not simply death and being with Christ, but the fuller end of that, this is like life after death, being with Christ, and then there's life after life after death, as N.T. Wright says, when uh, our being with Christ is coupled with our having resurrected bodies. Um, so. What exactly that means, I'm not sure. Just don't lose sight of the fuller resurrection to come in light of this. Um, so he's convinced that he will be returned to them. Why is he convinced? Because it's better for them. Um, this letter, Paul's going to be modeling. He's not going to do what he prefers, which might be to die, because it's better for them if he's with them. He's going to point to Timothy who serves them, Epaphroditus who serves them, and especially Jesus, who puts the needs of others before himself. Uh, so Paul is modeling here what he's going to call for throughout this letter to the Philippians. As you embody Christ, that means you're not, um, you're not always so self-focused, uh, that, that there is a concern for others that sometimes overrides one's own stuff. And then two more minutes uh, here. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, the language here, conduct yourself, 
uh, can be citizenship language. So interesting here that Paul is speaking to people in a uh, where Philippi uh, is this colony where you can have Roman citizenship. Um, so that conduct yourselves is something like live as a citizen. Live as a citizen of the gospel or live as a citizen of the kingdom. If uh, to live worthy of the gospel, remember gospel, God reigns. To live worthy of the truth that God reigns is to live lives of hope, right? Confident expectation. Live lives of joy. Victory has been won. Uh, live lives of boldness because you are on the right side of things. To live, uh, if the gospel means that a victory has been won through sacrificial love, then a life worthy of that claim, that victory has been won through sacrificial love, a life worthy of that is a life that reflects mercy and humility and service. We are citizens of the gospel where Christ is king. And we do this together in verse 27, struggling together in one spirit. Think capital S spirit. Um, there is not a me and God kind of religion in Christianity. It's an us and God kind of thing. That's how we demonstrate this. And finally, in verse 28, uh, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and by God. The opposition reveals destruction for some, whatever that might mean. Uh, and let's focus on how opposition might reveal salvation. To be opposed might be a way uh, to be sanctified, to progress, as we are honed, um, as we are um, purified. And it might be, as Paul says, a sign of uh, confirmation. To live rightly in a world that's going the wrong direction uh, will bring opposition. It's confirmation. This is a sign of your salvation. You are living uh, the right way in a world that's backwards. Uh, and so perhaps uh, we might consider if our own experience of minor opposition reveals our minor progress. Just to summarize and think about, who, who do you think might write a letter like this back to Otter Creek? How about, our mission? How about the people in Kenya? Thank you for participating in our ministry in Nairobi. Mm -hmm. How about the people in Central America where Steve Sherman served? How about the people down in Agape thanking us for helping establish that work all the building? How about the people in YES? All of that, how about the people in the kindergarten? being thankful for the wonderful facility they have right here. To, and we should be thankful, obviously, to them uh, for the work they've done in so many lives of children for these many years. In our firm, every year we publish the partner picture book. All, I guess when I began a partner, maybe there's a thousand partners, and now there's 2,500, 3,000, whatever. But every single picture was the exact same size. All it said underneath the picture was their name, what office they were in, the year they became a partner, and their birthday. Did you talk anything about their titles or anything else? And I think you view that same thing in God's picture book is that we can't get caught up in how much we can give or what our efforts are. 
effort to participate. Lydia's inviting those men to her household to give them a base of operations. The Philippians as a group sending monetary help, don't know how much, to Paul to help him sustain himself and his companions while he's in prison. Whatever you do to help Arbor Creek, to help other ministries here in this city, we have so many opportunities. Don't get caught up in how much you can do, but the fact that it becomes this symbolic effort of becoming part of that ministry. And I think if we do that, uh, we'll all be, we'll benefit ourselves as well as obviously the ministry you're helping. Okay, thanks for being here, and we will see you next week. You'll get an email talking about, reminding you.